Hamlet podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's book club episode talking about Henry IV part one. As I was planning out how a schedule of all of the plays might work, I wanted to avoid a situation wherein we would go through all of the plays chronologically, since I wanted to get a few of the really exciting plays in early, and indeed I've tried here and there to tie plays to particular times of the year. For the histories, however, we will go in actual chronological order, historical order, even if it means we will be looking at some rather early plays by Shakespeare rather later in the year. It was fun to start with Richard II, and now we reach Henry IV. This is the history play reworked, mind you. Shakespeare had quite a few already under his belt, in verse for the most part, and now he starts to stir the pot. There's comedy in this play. There's renewed glee in blurring the line between history and entertainment, and with comedy comes prose. But the key historical episodes are observed and preserved. The full title of the play, as published in 1598, is The History of Henry IV, with the Battle at Shrewsbury, between the King and Lord Henry Percy, surnamed Henry Hotspur of the North, with the humorous conceits of Sir John Falstaff. It's worth mentioning immediately that while we know this play as Henry IV Part One, Shakespeare wrote it as a standalone text. The play covers a key period in the life of King Henry IV, from his guilty feelings after taking the crown from Richard II to his victory over Hotspur and his faction. Spoiler alert. You'll notice immediately that while Falstaff makes it into the title, Hal, eventually to become Henry V, does not. This isn't to say, of course, that he isn't absolutely central to the play. Of course he is. Henry V is a candidate for England's greatest ever king, now and indeed in Shakespeare's day. This play, in which he wrestles with the turning point between the fun of youth and the responsibility of adulthood, is rather like his origin story. Shakespeare presents this young man and the various men who influence him. First and foremost is his father, Henry Bolingbroke, now King Henry IV. From the very beginning, we see the tension between father and son. King Henry almost wishes that his son had been exchanged at birth, because he's having such a good time cavorting around the taverns of London that it's an embarrassment to the crown. Worse yet, young Hal does not compare favourably with any of the other young men in the court or indeed the kingdom. Towards the end of Richard II, there's a brief exchange between Bolingbroke and Hotspur, back when they were allies, and they discuss the rakish behaviour of the young man. For the sake of the drama, Shakespeare pulls a very interesting stunt in the play King Henry IV. He makes Hotspur, who was in reality a few years older than the King Henry, a hot-headed young man equal in age to the younger Henry, Prince Hal. In this play that has three Henrys in it, I thank Shakespeare for designating them Henry, Hotspur and Hal. Hotspur is presented as the kind of son that Henry wishes he had, never mind that he was a few years older, so that we have a clear comparison with Prince Hal. Hotspur is focused, ambitious, politically motivated and ready for war at the drop of a hat. Meanwhile, Hal is busy drinking and carousing and seems to have no interest in the new mantle thrust upon him now that he is Prince of Wales. Having given Henry an alternative son figure in Hotspur, Shakespeare gives Hal an alternative father figure. 
he may have changed Hotspur's age and aspect, but for Hal, he invents a character quite unlike any other in Shakespeare, Sir John Falstaff. Early, early versions of the play are alleged to have included Sir John Oldcastle, who was a real person and a companion of the real Henry V. But Oldcastle was not a drunk or a freewheeler, and he died as a Protestant martyr. His descendants were apparently most displeased at his depiction in a play like this, and Shakespeare revised and upgraded him from Oldcastle to the Falstaff we now know, and there is a quite an obscure joke within the play that acknowledges this change. And what a character this Falstaff is. Exasperating, bombastic, unapologetic, and somehow glorious. So, we have three figures in Prince Hal's eyeline his father, his boozing buddy, and his rival. And, as we shall see, over the course of becoming this great king, he will outdo all three of them at the very strengths we see in them. But what of the prince himself? His first introduction is kind of laddish and fun as he trades jokes and gags with Falstaff at the inn. Over the course of the scene, a plan emerges. Essentially, a trap is laid so that Hal and his pal Poins will ensnare Falstaff. They will set him up just for the sake of seeing how outrageously he will lie about what happens when they all go drinking later on. The plot is based on a smash-and-grab setup that sounds a little like what King Henry plans in the first scene, a convoluted situation over prisoners from the campaigns that happened before this play. King Henry, by the way, would have us believe that he is at any minute ready to go on the pilgrimage to Jerusalem that he promised to make to atone for having supplanted Richard II. It becomes almost comical, mind you. He keeps having to point out that he really would go and make the pilgrimage to the Holy Land if affairs of state and the maintenance of his stolen crown didn't keep getting in the way. But back to Prince Hal. After all of the introduction and the setup, we get a soliloquy from him. He very seldom has any, just one in each of the three plays that feature him. After a long scene of inventive, clever prose, it's almost startling that this lusty young man slips into cool, calculated verse. I know you all, and will a while uphold the unyoked humour of your idleness. Yet herein will I imitate the sun, who doth permit the base, contagious clouds to smother up his beauty from the world, that, when he please again to be himself, being wanted, he may be more wondered at, by breaking through the foul and ugly mists of vapours that did seem to strangle him. If all the year were playing holidays, to sport would be as tedious as to work, but when they seldom come, they wished for come, and nothing pleaseth but rare accidents. So when this loose behaviour I throw off, and pay the debt I never promised, by how much better than my word I am, by so much shall I falsify men's hopes. And like bright metal on a sullen ground, my reformation, glittering o'er my fault, shall show more goodly and attract more eyes than that which hath no foil to set it off. I'll so offend to make offence a skill, redeeming time, when men think least I will. There's no lack of confidence here, as he likens himself to the sun. Like Hamlet, perhaps, there's also a play on the sound of the word sun, as in the sky, and sun, as in the heir to the king. Whenever he pleases, he can throw off this disguise, and, by extension, throw off these folks he's hanging around with. 
His loose behaviour isn't quite finished yet, but it's a remarkable, almost Machiavellian insight. A prince indeed. There are those who read this as a deeply unpleasant speech, showing us a very sour aspect of Henry V. It's certainly a big change from the public face he's shown to everyone else in the play thus far. But a part of me wonders if the actor playing him might have relished and manipulated the popularity of the historical character. If he knows immediately that the audience loves him because he is going to be the great and glorious Henry V, perhaps there's a kind of intimacy, a shared secret here. We all know I'm going to grow up eventually and that when I do I'll change history. So really there's nothing to worry about if I sow a few wild oats now, is there? As for unyoked humour, well, that's Falstaff's department. After the botched nighttime attack, he really doesn't disappoint, giving a totally preposterous account of what happened, changing the numbers constantly and seeming almost to inflate himself with the swagger of his lies. When he's left without a leg to stand on, just as the room is about to collapse with laughter at his outrageous pork pies, he insists that actually he knew what was happening all along. In the hands of the right actor, the whole affair can be very funny indeed. The scene in the tavern is one of the longest and most expansive in the play, and indeed in Shakespeare. We have Falstaff's careful avoidance, or relishing, of ridicule, and then it is decided that he and Hal will improvise a little play, since Hal has been summoned to court, so it might be a good idea to practice what he's going to say to explain his behaviour to his regal father. Hal will play Henry, and Falstaff plays Hal. There's quite an edge to this forward-looking role-play, since we have a glimpse of Hal as a king, censuring Falstaff as himself. Whether it's Hal criticising himself, or indeed criticising his extravagant friend, there's a brilliant spike of venom running just underneath the surface of the exuberant comedy in this scene. One particularly impressive feature of this play, so accomplished that one doesn't really notice it immediately, is the ease with which Shakespeare moves between the worlds and locations of the story. We jump repeatedly from Henry's court to the raucous world of the tavern and then to the world of Hotspur and his allies. In a scene that doesn't look like much on the page, Shakespeare introduces Glendower, Henry's great Welsh rival, and his daughter, who is married to Lord Mortimer. The lady speaks in Welsh and even sings. She's a fascinating character because we never really get to know what she is saying. The very text of the play only has stage directions indicating when she or her father speaks in Welsh. Shakespeare does not write it down. Just before the play turns martial and violent as the big battle looms, we get this intimate scene between husbands and wives, fathers and daughters, complete with the same lady singing in Welsh. It's a remarkable moment. As for those wives, Hotspur is well matched with his wife Catherine, who is just as much of a hothead and wants to know why he's been ignoring her so absolutely of late. He seems to be more interested in his horse than her, but as they argue quite spiritedly, they do show a real passion for each other. It's yet another contrast with Prince Hal, who only seems to spend time with the prostitutes of Eastcheap. Bear in mind, the audience would presumably have known well that he would eventually end up marrying a French princess, a happy and strategic match. Hal's interview with his father goes surprisingly well. After a major tongue lashing, Hal stands up and says that yes, he will show up now and be the prince that's needed. 
He doesn't quite forswear his base contagious friends, but he does seem to be rather more focused on the job he needs to be doing. Hotspur, after all, is leading a rebellion, hoping to overthrow Henry. It comes to a head at the Battle of Shrewsbury, notoriously one of the bloodiest battles in the history of medieval England. For the record, it took place in July of 1403, almost 600 years ago. Shakespeare stages the battle in a brilliant way, bringing all of the key players of this story together on a single desperate day, scene by scene. Falstaff himself shows up to the battle, but of course he has a bottle of sack with him. He says a line that always springs to my mind on days that I know there's going to be something difficult or awkward. I would it were bedtime, Hal, and all well. Wouldn't we all? But of course there is the minor detail of the famous battle that, along with Falstaff's conceits, is in the extended title of the play. We see King Henry fighting and then Hal saves him. We see the punch-drunk, bloodthirsty zeal of Hotspur living up to his name. Back and forth, Shakespeare presents snapshot after snapshot of the day's events. Eventually it appears that Falstaff has been killed, but actually he's just playing dead. And finally, we get the showdown as Hal and Hotspur meet in combat. Regardless of whether one knows any or all of the historical details, this is an exciting match, since we've spent the whole play seeing just how ready Hotspur is for the fight, but how ill-prepared Hal seems to be. Seems, again. Because, of course, he's told us from the end of that very first scene that we're only seeing what he chooses to show to his mates, to his father, to Hotspur, and it would seem to us. Hal wins the fight, and thereby wins the day. There's even a verbal handover as poor Hotspur dies. He dies mid-sentence, and Hal gets to have his last word. Poor Hotspur really is hard done by, but such is history. If there are to be winners, there have to be losers too. Almost immediately, Hal then spots Falstaff's body on the ground, and he speaks quite tenderly over what he assumes is his friend's corpse. Shockingly, Falstaff then rises up again once Hal leaves, and even more shockingly, he decides to stab Hotspur's body a few times in the hope of claiming the kill as his own, so that he can collect the bounty on Hotspur's head. In the play's most grisly moment, he attempts to swagger off with Hotspur's body on his back. Prince Hal reappears to be met with this sight, the conflation of all the things he's focused on in the play, his misspent youth with this outrageous, glorious liar, and the desecrated corpse of the arch-enemy and rival he's just killed. It's a really extraordinary image. Falstaff, who has spent the play elasticating reality as much as his unyoked waistband, continues in the lie that it was he that killed Hotspur. The play ends with King Henry acknowledging the win, We've now covered everything the title suggested we would cover, and Prince Hal is left looking between Falstaff and his father. It is worth noting again that this play was not conceived as a part one by any means. This was Shakespeare's Henry IV play, and that was to be that. It just happens to have been a smash hit, and so he and his company did what all good creatives do when they've had a blockbuster. They tried to recreate it. Falstaff himself was such a hit, with audiences and with royalty alike, that he gets not one, but two sequels. But King Henry and Prince Hal themselves didn't do too badly, and they all get to come back for part two. 
By now we've seen Prince Hal be just as clever and as outrageous as Falstaff, outwitting him eventually, and he's been just as good and chivalrous a soldier as Hotspur, again defeating him at the end. Next up, we will see him prove himself just as meticulous and even malicious a politician as his father, as he intimated in that soliloquy all the way back in Act 1. We will come to Henry IV Part 2 later this month. I've deliberately separated them because I think they deserve to be looked at on their own terms. People seem to love writing about Falstaff, so there's no shortage of critical or literary commentary about him, good and bad. If you'd like to read more about the play or the experience of creating Falstaff for the stage, I thoroughly recommend Anthony Sher's fairly recent book, The Year of the Fat Knight. Sher is an amazing actor and artist, and the way he documents his time preparing the role of Falstaff for the Royal Shakespeare Company is a beautiful insight into the process of a working actor. I got very lucky and I managed to see Sher's performance live on stage, and I have to say, it was one of the most glorious Shakespeare performances I've ever seen. Next week, we move to something entirely different. There must be very few Shakespearean characters with an actual month named after them, and so since it's July now, and we've already had comedies, histories, and some early tragedies, it's time to go back to ancient Rome. Our next book club play will be, of course, Julius Caesar. I hope you're enjoying the summer and these book club episodes wherever you are in the world, and I'll speak to you next time.